morning. Thank you, worship team. That was, I love that song. It's so great. So, good morning. Thank you all for coming and worshiping with us this morning. It's great to see you. Uh, if you haven't met me, I'm Jason Averill. I'm the assistant pastor here. Uh, our senior pastor, Ryan Baker, is on vacation for a couple of weeks, and then he has a couple of weeks of study. And so I will be preaching for uh, the rest of July. So good times for me, and I hope for you too. Um, we have been going through a series on the Psalms uh, ever since the beginning of summer. And the Psalms are really, it's, it's a great book to do a summer series in because you don't have to have everything um, connected together. You can take each one just kind of separately and focus on themes, and that's what we've been doing. Um, the Psalms also give us a voice for our worship that is many times absent from a, a, lot, of, um, a lot of Christian worship. You see a lot of anguish, and you see honest responses to fear and to, to threat, and you see anger, and how we can turn all of that back to God, and he can come alongside and be with us in it. Uh, it's really great to see the psalmists do that and use their emotions to worship God. So today, we're going to be continuing that. We're going to be looking at Psalm 46, uh, but first, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what our own individual reasons for being here are, that ultimately we are here because you have called us. You have called us here to worship you. Father, we know that you have said that it's in worshiping you that we find true rest true life, true rejuvenation, and you are a good, great, merciful God who wants that for us, and so you have us worship you. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for, for not leaving us alone, for coming to earth for us, for becoming one of us for being the true preacher, being the true word, our true worship leader. Holy Spirit, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for binding us to our great Savior. And we thank you that you are here present in this worship service with us. Please, Lord, Illumine our minds and open our hearts to the truth of your scriptures and to the beauty of your love for us. Thank you so much for all of your good blessings for us. Amen. So, like I said, today we'll be doing Psalm 46. It's uh, kind of uh, one of the more famous psalms. You probably know it, or at least the first verse. It's the one that starts out, God is my refuge, a very present help in trouble. 
Uh, it's, like I said, one of my favorites. It's one of the only psalms that I have memorized, though I don't have it memorized in the ESV. Uh, I thought before we jump into reading the psalm that I give you just a little bit of background on when it was written or when we think it was written. It's kind of hard to peg down exactly when. But um, to back up, we have uh, about 960 B.C., sorry, 930 B.C., you have the split of Israel. Solomon has died. His sons are fighting over the throne. Israel has split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and there's a lot of political strife that's going around, a lot of evil kings that are raising up and leading both nations astray. And um, in the midst of that, political strife, you also have threats from the outside coming in. And so you have the Assyrians building up uh, their nation above northern Israel. And in 722, they actually come down and they exile northern Israel. And northern Israel is kind of never to be seen again. They don't come back from exile. In 750, you also have a, a huge natural disaster that happens. It's an earthquake. It's the largest earthquake that geologists say this, the largest er earthquake in that area for about 4,000 years. Um, I don't remember the magnitude, but that seems like it's pretty big, especially if geologists can go back and find record of it and know exactly when it happened. So we have a lot of things that are just going on here in Israel. And the psalmist is looking around and he is seeing the people of God being gripped by fear. It's clawing at their hearts, trying to separate them from God. And his answer is to write this psalm. It's a psalm that is supposed to remind us of the confidence that we have in God. I look around today and I see a lot of the same things, not necessarily the particulars, but there is a lot of political strife in our country. There are natural disasters all over the place. It's hard to go a day without hearing about Hurricane Elsa. We see countries around the world mobilizing for war, and I see a lot of fear in God's people. And I feel it too. I feel it too. I'm not immune to it. But the psalmist here has the same answer for us. So, please stand as we read the psalm together. I know that's a little different. We don't, normally don't stand, but I'm old-fashioned in that way. All right. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst. She will not be moved. 
God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Behold, sorry, come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. It stands forever. So let's turn our attention to it. Please be seated. So we come to the psalm today in much the same way that the the ancient people of Israel would have come to the psalm. um, With a lot, a, a large majority of the people of God feeling a lot of fear and anxiety. And so today we're going to be looking at three things. We're going to be looking at fear. We're going to be looking at what it means to take refuge. And we're going to be looking at how it is that we actually take refuge in God, how he becomes our refuge. So fear, refuge, and then how do we do it? So, what does the psalmist mean by fear? I think, well, I don't think, I know, uh, all of us know kind of intuitively what fear is. We've all felt it, we, all, we know what it is, but it is helpful, I think, to draw a distinction. And psychologists have done this for us, and I, I think that distinction is actually here in the text. Um, and it's a distinction between fear and anxiety. And so... To kind of illustrate the difference, um, I like to tell you a little story, okay? So I was about 10 years old, maybe 12 years old, and my family took a trip to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we visited the Teton National Park, and that was a great trip, Um, and during it, we found out about this hike that we could do, and it was up one of the mountains Excuse me. It was up one of the mountains, and then once you reached the top of the mountain, you could look down from an observation point to this big, beautiful lake that was taking up the entire valley. And you couldn't see it except by going on that hike. And so we decided, hey, we really wanted to see that. So we started off on the trail, and about two-thirds of the way up, we came to this blind bend in in the path. And we turned, and there was a moose. And this moose was huge, especially to a little 10 to 12-year-old boy. It was about seven feet tall. And it took up the entire path. And all of us immediately froze. You know, it's that fight, flight, or freeze. And all of us froze because we didn't know what to do. Moose are dangerous, particularly big moose like this. 
you know, they can take on bears and win most of the time. And we think bears are scary. So, we all backed away very slowly and went back about a quarter mile down the trail and just waited. And that, that instance right there, is what psychologists would call fear. You have come up against a very present, very immediate threat, and you feel this emotion that is causing you to say, warning, danger, and you either fight, flight, or freeze. Anxiety is what happened afterward. So we waited for just a little bit of time to see if the moose would get off the path, and it did get off the path, and we kept going up the mountain. But the problem was that every single time we came to one of those blind bends, and there were a lot of them, if you've ever been mountain climbing or mountain hiking, you know, there are a lot of switchbacks. But every time we felt that same fear again, and that's anxiety, because we were like, what if the moose is around this bend? What if it's around this bend? And we didn't know, but we still had that fear in us. And the reason why that's important to make that distinction is because fear itself is not always a bad thing. It was a very good thing when we came around the bend and saw the moose to be afraid. Because if we had kept going, he would have killed us. But that paralyzing, sometimes paralyzing, anxiety that happens in the wake of that encounter, that what if, that is what we fight against. And I would argue that that's really what the psalmist is after when he's saying that we will not fear, and that's that we won't be controlled by it that we won't be anxious all the time. And I think we see that if we look at verses 2 and 3 again. Um, Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth gives way. You know, that gives way right there, that actually is a Hebrew word. It means shake. So a lot of commentators read that and they think, hey, he's actually referencing that earthquake. He probably lived through it. So as one event that happens that caused a lot of fear and left a whole bunch of anxiety in its wake. Even though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, even in those instances, those are not things that have actually happened. They're things that might happen. What if? What if? And so he's really trying to highlight that we shouldn't be anxious about these things. That's what we would call it. It's still a fear response. I don't want to downplay that. We also see it in verse 6. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. You know, the nations raging right here is probably Assyria. They're feeling the threat coming in from the north. The kingdoms tottering is probably northern Israel. They haven't been taken into exile yet. And yet... The danger is real, but it hasn't happened yet. It's still a might be. And so that's kind of 
That's the difference that I want to set up between fear and anxiety. And whenever we say fear from now on, that's what I'm going to be really referring to. So, a response to anxiety, a response to fear, is to seek refuge. So, what is a refuge? A refuge is a place of safety. It's a place of shelter, protection. It's something that we look to for security, something that we look to to keep us safe. And the psalmist here is very clear. God is our refuge. God is our strength. It's in him, ultimately, that we find safety and security. The problem is that oftentimes most of us, even us Christians, do not see him or seek him as our refuge. We seek other things. We put our hope in other things. Maybe it's employment. Maybe it's your job. That you find safety and security and ultimate hope in. Or your appearance or reputation. Or your family. And we think... But wait a minute, Jason. It's, it's good to feel safe and secure in your family. And yes, that is true. The problem isn't with all of these things, whether employment or wealth or family or friends, even political parties. Okay? The problem isn't feeling secure in them or feeling safe in them. The problem is holding them up as your ultimate source of safety and comfort. Why is it a problem? Because every single one of them might be taken away from you. At the drop of a hat. Your, your job might go away, either because of an economic downturn or because you made your boss mad. Your reputation might go just because you made a super stupid mistake. Or maybe you were just slandered. And yet... If you would put your safe, if you would put your hope in your safety and security in those things, all of a sudden you're undone. You have nowhere else to go. The problem, again, is finding our ultimate security in anything else other than God, because it will inevitably lead to more fear, more anxiety, more what-ifs, 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 what-ifs. So we seek God as our refuge. But what does that mean? What does it mean that we find safety and security in God? It does not mean, I want to press in on this, it does not mean that the dangers of life are eliminated. The dangers of life are still there. So what do I mean by that? So I have a house in Oklahoma. Okay, there's always a very present danger any time that we are in tornado season that my house will be taken out by a tornado. That's a danger. And it's one that I live with because I live in Oklahoma. And that danger is real. But that tornado though it might take away my house, unless I've set up my ultimate safety and security in it, cannot undo me. 
because it cannot separate me from the love of God in Christ. And anything, anything that's taken from me, no matter how valuable, no matter, no matter how much I cherish it, nothing that is taken from me can compare to the love of God and the promise of eternal life through Christ. Nothing. So, how do we do it? How do we make God our refuge? I think that, I think that the answer to that is actually in the last part of the psalm, starting in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. What? How is that supposed to make us secure? How is that supposed to lead to any feeling of security? I thought God was supposed to be safe, but if he's the one who brings desolation, how in the world can he be safe? And that's a fair question. It's a great question. And it's probably the hardest thing that we have to wrestle with as believers. How do we trust a God who has control over everything? There's actually an entire book in the Bible written about it. It's Job. Uh, it's, it's a fun read, let me tell you. And because of that, because of this problem, a lot of commentators, whenever they come to this passage, they actually argue for a different translation. They argue for translating that word that's translated as desolations as astonishing things. And in fact, some of, some of the modern translations of the Bible go that way. And the argument is this. I mean, there's a for every word, there's a semantic range. That's a big, fancy seminary phrase for there's, there's a lot of meanings for any one word. And so one of the allowable meanings for the word that's used is astonishing things. And so maybe we should just ditch the desolations and go with astonishing things. Oh, look at all the good stuff that God has done. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing to want. The problem is that it doesn't actually match up with how the, the word is used in the Bible every other time. Every other time it's used in the Bible, it's used as a desolation, as a horrific thing. If it's used as an astonishing thing, it's how astonishingly bad it is. But it also doesn't eliminate the problem. It may eliminate the problem as we look at this text, but there are other places in the Bible that kind of claim the same thing, where bad things happen, and God claims that as his work. Isaiah 45, 7. I am the God who makes light and creates darkness. I am the God who creates well-being and creates calamity. I am God and there is no other. That's what he says. And so, how is it that this is comforting? 
I would actually argue that it's only a God who can claim this, who claims that he's the one that brings desolation and calamity that could ever possibly be our refuge, a safe place. Why would I say that? Well, because when anything happens, you know, any bad thing happens to you or to anyone in the world, the question that is asked is, could it have been different? Did God have control over the situation? We call that sovereignty in theological speak. Was God in control? And the only answer is yes or no. And if it's no, if God did not control it, if he did not intend for it to happen, if he didn't ordain it to happen, then that means that there are things that are outside of his control and he can't protect you at all. And so the only protection to be had is in the answer, yes. Yes, God has control over the situation. But how does he control it? That's, if we read on just a little bit, one more verse. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The psalmist clarifies this sense in which God is bringing desolations in this verse. He says that he makes war cease. He is using the instruments of war to bring about an end of the institution of war. He's using the bad to accomplish the good. And that's actually been his M.O. throughout the entirety of the Bible. If you go back to the story of Joseph, it's a perfect example of that, where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And then years later, when his brothers meet up with them, what does he say to them? He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In fact, we see it most clearly, I would say, with Jesus going to the cross. That God proclaims happens according to his definite plan and foreknowledge that Jesus went to the cross. The greatest horror that has ever been known where the God of the universe went, suffered, and died, taking on our sin. And yet, that greatest horror brought about the greatest blessing in the history of the world. There has never been anything to compare it to, ever. Even if you are an unbeliever right now, if you do an honest study of history up until the time of Jesus and then after his death, and onward, you are faced inexorably with the knowledge that because of him, Christianity came into being. Because Christianity came into being, all of these horrible atrocities started becoming less acceptable. Hospitals were set up. 
public institutions of education were set up. That through his death, the world was actually made a better place. So, let's keep going. How do we do it? Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted. That's part of this story. It's part of our story, too. You know, how laughable would it have been to go and read this psalm, you know, 200 years later after southern Israel, Judah, had been exiled, taken off into Babylon, and God's people seemed to be dead and buried. How laughable would this psalm have been from the outside? I will be exalted among the nations. How is that going to happen? All of your people are gone. And yet, again, we look at history and what happened? What has happened? Right now, a third of the earth, a third of the people on the earth, proclaim Christ as their Savior. That means a third of the people on the earth today will exalt and glorify God. And his name is being exalted over the earth. And that's a good thing. It's something that we can hold on to. It's something that is real. That we can look to that and say, God is fulfilling his promise. But there's even more than that. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, There are a couple of times in Scripture where we see this with us. It's actually it's a compound word. It's it's paired with something else. It's Emmanu, and then there's El, Emmanuel. And that's used in Isaiah, but it's also used here. Except instead of Emmanuel, with us God, it's Manu Yahweh. It's with us is the Lord of hosts. And we can look back through 2,000 years of history, knowing how the story ends and know that this is the promise made to us. This is the promise fulfilled in Jesus that through Jesus we are saved because he became one of us. He lived the life demanded of us by the law. He died the criminal's death that we all deserve. He suffered the true desolation and horror of the Father's wrath for our sin. Through his blood, we are cleansed and justified and adopted, and we can go to God as a beloved child instead of an enemy. Because of Jesus, we can actually name God as our refuge. We can name him as our hope and our salvation because he has already accomplished the work. And through his abiding presence in us, in the Holy Spirit, we have true safety. I know it doesn't feel like it all the time, but it is real. 
true safety. Nothing now can separate us you separate you from the love of Christ. Love of God through Christ Jesus. Nothing. Because we are united with the Father through him. So how do we do it? How do we make God our refuge? Well, first off, it's to know him. And to know him means to study him, to worship him. It means to, to read your Bible. It means to examine yourself in light of your fears. Bring those to him. It means to go to him every day and worship him. And as you do that, you will find that all of the fear that is in you, all of the anxiety that you have, will slowly be leached away. It's not going to happen in one instance. But as you make it your practice in life, he will become your refuge, and you won't go around being afraid all the time. Finally, how, you, how do you do it? Well, you have to act. Okay, it's belief does nothing unless belief is real enough to motivate our actions. And so you have to act on your trust. You have to actively speak to yourself, preach the gospel, tell your fears, get the hints. Because the Lord is my refuge. You actually have to do it. Praise be to God. Because Jesus has faced everything for us. And through him we can actually do it. Not because we can summon up the power ourselves. But because he has already done it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the psalmist. We thank you for giving him a heart for his people and a heart for us. We thank you that though the dangers in this world are real and though our fears are real, that we do not have to be terrified or gripped by fear every day because, Lord, with you we are safe and secure. And nothing now, though it might harm our body, nothing now can harm our soul. Nothing now can separate us from your love, the love that we have through Christ. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you have cast aside all shame because you wanted us in your family. You despised this shame and you went to the cross and you died for us so that you might purchase an eternal, lasting, impeccable salvation. Holy Spirit, we thank you for binding us closer and closer every day to Jesus.
Lord, for your Savior, we thank you for praying with us, for us. And we thank you. We thank you for renewing our hearts every day and turning our eyes constantly toward our great Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.